Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Secret of the Machines by Rudyard Kipling. Not 100% sure when this was first published. Um, the book we got it out of is from 1911, which is, uh, I think, a, a history of England for children or something like that. And uh, I um, think the title is A School History uh, of England. That's right? it, A School History of England, which I think is a uh, pretty good place to find a poem such as this. Um, <coughs> but uh, I was thinking... It's actually pretty timeless, even though it's 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 rooted in in some specific time period. It's a it could have been written a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. Um, it might not have had all the same contents, but machines have been with us for a long time, and I don't think they're going away anytime soon. So I I I, I like even though it is a very um, it's got some specific references that rooted in its exact period of writing. It is also not to be uh, dismissed only because of that, or because of you, that. You, no, I. Uh, that's that's a terrific opening. I, it leads to a question that I think um, we should discuss, but not until after we've got gone over the poem itself, and that is, what's a machine? Mm. I mean, I, I certainly know that uh, by many definitions, a lever can be thought of as a machine, as an archetypal machine. But it's not at all clear to me that 2000 years ago, people would have thought of a lever as a machine or that this poem thinks of a lever as a machine. So let's read the poem and see if we can figure out, among other things, what what does it mean to be a machine as meant by the title the secret of the machines mm-hmm. okay uh did you want to read it or shall i oh enjoy okay here we go the secret of the machines by Richard kipling we were taken from the ore bed and the mine we were melted in the furnace and the pit we were cast and wrought and hammered to design We were cut and filed and tooled and gauged to fit. Some water, coal, and oil is all we ask, and a thousandth of an inch to give us play. And now, if you will, set us to our task. We will serve you four and twenty hours a day. We can pull and haul and push and lift and drive. We can print and plow and weave and heat and light. We can run and jump and swim and fly and dive. We can see and hear and count and read and write. Would you call a friend from half across the world? If you'll let us have his name in town and state, you shall see and hear your crackling question hurled across the arch of heaven while you wait. Has he answered? Does he need you at his side? You can start this very evening if you choose and take the Western Ocean in the stride of 30,000 horses and some screws. The boat express is waiting your command. You will find the Mauritania at the quay. 
till her captain turns the lever neath his hand, and the monstrous nine-deck city goes to sea. Do you wish to make the mountains bear their head, and lay their new-cut forests at your feet? Do you want to turn a river in its bed, and plant a barren wilderness with wheat? Shall we pipe aloft and bring your water down, from the never-failing cisterns of the snows, to work the mills and tramways in your town, and irrigate your orchards as it flows? It is easy. Give us dynamite and drills. Watch the iron-shouldered rocks lie down and quake. As the thirsty desert level floods and fills, and the valley we have dammed becomes a lake. But remember, please, the law by which we live. We are not built to comprehend a lie. We can neither love nor pity nor forgive. If you make a slip in handling us, you die. We are greater than the peoples or the kings. Be humble as you crawl beneath our rods. Our touch can alter all created things. We are everything on earth except the gods. Though our smoke may hide the heavens from your eyes, it will vanish and the stars will shine again. Because for all our power and weight and size, we are nothing more than children of your brain. So it's a, it's a poem that ultimately claims it is a, that the speaker is speaking for children. And the poem is presumably addressed to children. As far as I've been able to discover, uh, this publication in a uh, school history of England is the first publication of this poem. Uh, Kipling is listed as a co-author of that history. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, one can easily imagine that this isn't anthologized there. It was created for that situation, a, a child machine speaking to other children. Um, has this poem work in a history book? How does it appeal to you? Do you like this poem, Jesse? Oh, I, I like it, yeah. Um, I, I like that it's it's told from the perspective of the machines, which I'm I'm always in favor of anthropomorphizing things. I think it, <laughs> I I think it it changes perspectives, and um, and this this does that exactly. It it excuse technically this isn't anthropomorphization; it's personification. Ah, personification. Yes, I'm sorry. You're right. Um, but it, it, they're related though, and oh yeah, I mean if if you, I mean Mickey Mouse is both personified, made to act like a person, and anthropomorphized, mm-hmm. made to look like a human being. So they're, they You're often right. come together. You're right. Yeah. It is personification. It, it, we are... Um, it's funny because um, I, I looked... The only thing I looked up in this whole poem is the is the name of the boat, or the ship, I should say. It says uh-huh. Boat Express, uh, the Mauritania. And I've, I've heard the name. I didn't realize it was spelled that way. So... Um, it, it was one of these great ships from from the early 20th century that had uh, a brief but spectacular career moving people across the Atlantic Ocean and uh, and and reading about its history um, 
it brought perspective that I doubt uh, Kipling considered in in this poem. If if he was writing it today, looking back at or rewriting it today, looking back, he might have added another stanza about how you know these great machines can be you know used for a time and then recycled. <laughs> reused as as other things you know the the or we are taken from the orbit and the mind so i'm seeing thinking steel here is brought out of the earth in the form of iron and worked with carbon and you know heated and worked into shapes of great plates for the side of an ocean liner but then that ship is broken and recycled and turned into railroad you know lines and uh we've got all sorts of things going on here but reading it that way um it is different from reading it in sort of a futuristic way it's almost as if um you, you read this as the robots earlier <laughs> you know they're given a life in this story but we don't see their their existence other than at the end i think as as sort of greater beings than just machines for labor well um there's an interesting line uh to me this goes to me part of the question of what what is a machine when it says in the second verse we can pull and haul and push and lift and drive um, the use of we is you know, personification. We can print and plow and weave and heat and light. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's, you know, the pull and the haul, okay, you know, tractors and uh, push and lift, uh, pistons and, and jacks or pulleys and drive, uh, okay, automobiles. It's 1911 after all. We can print, okay, printing presses and plow, okay, uh, plows and weave uh, okay we've got looms and heat okay we've got boilers and light and you know i think most people nowadays when people say are you into technology what they typically mean is are you interested in new digital devices they don't mean for example are you interested in finding out how a fishing rod works? Mm-hmm. Right? That's technology. They don't mean, um, are you interested in how to smelt good steel for a hunting knife? That's technology. Mm-hmm. But that's not what people mean when they say, uh, yes, I'm interested in technology. Um, so I, I get, you know, machine as pull, haul, push, lift, drive, print, plow, weave, and even heat. But light? This is 1911. I, I have a feeling most people would not consider a light bulb as a machine. Now, that doesn't mean that one couldn't think of it as a machine. But the next line says, we can run and jump and swim and fly and dive. And I guess in a way, if you can say that they are pulling and hauling, then they can jump and dive and swim and fly and dive. Now, at that point, 
skipping over for a moment whether or not one would think of the light of lighting as a machine at that point everything in that stanza pulling hauling etc down to swim fly and dive follows marshall McLuhan's notion that machines are fundamental extensions of what human beings already do so for example i can walk well, my bicycle allows me to transport faster. I can swim. My boat allows me to go across the water faster. I can talk. My telephone allows my voice to reach further. My megaphone allows it to be louder, uh, etc. I can remember things. My book allows me to remember more accurately, um, etc. That's what McLuhan says. But then the last line of that stanza says, we can see and hear and count and read and write. Well, it, it, you know, the second line of the stanza said we can print. Okay, I get printing press. But if you're going to say read and write, now we're back to what you were raising to begin with, uh, Jesse. Is this artificial intelligence? This is no longer just personification. Here, we haven't just personified the, the machines. We are suggesting that the machines can do things that at the time of the writing of this, machines cannot do. That if, if we take a McLuhan-esque extension of human capabilities and ask, is there a machine in 1911 then can write? The answer is, well, if you think of printing as writing, yes. But if you separate those two, if you mention both as if they were two different things, what are we talking about here? Is, is this uh, in the tradition of Erewhon, you know, Butler's 1872 novel that warns against machines becoming autonomous? Well, I mean, the, the, I think we can take it two different ways, at least. Um, that final line of the second stanza, we can see and hear and count and read and write. So one way of thinking of see is, you know, cameras. And of course we have machines at that time that could do that. We could, there was even television of a certain kind at that time. Um, so it's not just still images. Now they could use lights um, to detect objects on a conveyor belt at that time that's kind of seeing here well you could say the device i'm speaking into now they had them back then microphone right oh, makes sense count oh certainly they had counting machines back then read hmm well in a certain sense the tel telegraph is is a read write device right um but even even if we even if we stretch the last one right to, you know, a sort of a, not a practical device for everyday use, but a sort of circus machine um, that has a, an automaton with a pen in its hand and it can write a whole letter. Well, cogs and wheels underneath, you know, are what, but I, I like to think of it as not just that, but to extend it to everything both past the present of the story and our future and the present we're in now 
and uh, I think it's true. What What's cool about Kipling is he's super smart. He's super interested in technology, and he is. This is a kind of science fiction in a certain sense because he was familiar with the stuff. He wrote some of the stuff, and he he is seeing, I guess, as Butler was in Erwan, um, that all machines have these potentials, if not actually at the time. So this. So, so what you're suggesting is, yeah, let's read it as AI. Yeah, right. Uh, in the, one this, interpretation, I think you can. Right. So, um, I get that, and and it, frankly, it makes it makes a kind of sense because if we think of a person, then what we also think of is free will, as. Um, if we, if we think of a cow as a person, it becomes very difficult to harvest it, right? If we think, you know, and in fact, we use the word slaughter rather than harvest, acknowledging its animation. But we don't talk about eating steak the way we talk about cannibalism because we don't think of cows as having free will. We think of them as just doing what they are programmed to do, what they are made to do in their cowness. Um, so if if we're taking this warning from the machine or whoever the speaker is who speaks for we, the machines, um, when he gets to the, the rules, um, just before he gets to them, he he sort of says, we're really we're going to do everything. We're going to shape the world. Give us dynamite and drills. And at that point, when he says drills, that's the last time that he mentions what I think of as a machine. As if go back 2000 years, if we're going to think of the lever as a machine, then a drill is a machine. But if a drill is a machine, and this guy says, the speaker of the poem, give us dynamite and drills. The machine is asking to have its own tool. The machine says, give, not, not use dynamite and drills. We will be your drill. We will print and plow and drill. He says, give us drills. We, the machines, will then use the drills. So the drills aren't machines, just the way the cows aren't people. Um, so now this AI has really said, okay, we're going to do what we're going to do. We will use tools of the tools the way, you know, uh, a digital assistant will order stuff for you and it will be delivered by drone. The digital assistant is the AI and it's using other tools. But now that we've got this personified to the point of being able to do stuff with other tools, whoop, it changes and says, but please, but remember, please the law by which we live. We are not built to comprehend a lie. We cannot, we can neither love nor pity nor forgive. Because they are not at all human. If we make a slip in handling us, you die. We are greater than the people or the kings. Be humble as you crawl beneath our rods one touch can alter all created, our touch can alter all created things. 
we are everything on earth except the gods. Now, when he says that, we are everything on earth, that sounds like a kind of hubris. But then instantly he says, but no, except the gods. So the gods are even higher. If you'll remember, at the beginning of the poem, the word heaven appears, right? You want to talk to your friend? Uh, just give us his name and town and state. And your question, what you want to ask your friend, will be hurled across the arch of heaven while you wait. I don't think heaven is accidental here because the speaker personified, though I'll say he, um, but I think it's neuter. Um, the, 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 this speaker also has to live by this law. What imposes the law? The gods, the gods of heaven. Though our smoke, and this is the only italicized part of the poem, except for the title of uh, the name of the boat, Mauritania, though our smoke may hide the heavens from your eyes, it will vanish and the stars will shine again. Okay, so what it's saying is the stuff that you have created, the industrial revolution, may so pollute the world that you will not be able to see the heavens. But in fact, that smoke will vanish. The stars will shine again because for all our power and weight and size, we are nothing more than children of your brain. So I start thinking about this. You know, the guy's given us all, he's, he's puffing up his own importance. He's then warning us about what he's going to do. Then he says, but you know what? We are secondary to you. And that's why the stars will shine again, because we are the children of your brain. So I would like to put something to you, Jesse. There is, as you probably know, something called the doctrine of the fortunate fall. No, it's, I'm not familiar with this. Well, the, the doctrine of the fortunate fall is one of the standard Christian responses to the problem of theodicy. The problem of theodicy, theo, God, DK, justice. The problem of theodicy is the problem of God's justice. If you postulate an all-knowing and all-powerful God, then anything that happens, happens because God wills it. Because even if God does nothing, since he's omnipotent, uh, by doing nothing, he is allowing what will happen to happen. So logically speaking, if you have an omniscient and omnipotent God, anything that happens is God's fault. If, in fact, you assert that God is also good, then how do you justify bad things happening in the world? How do you justify an innocent baby suffering, for example, it's and to the, justify the ways the of problem of evil in philosophy. Yeah. Well, it's actually called the problem of theodicy, okay. but because it, it, there are other problems of evil that don't in, involve the uh, existence of a God. But, but for people who do care about the existence of God, like Milton in the beginning of paradise lost, you know, I'm going to justify the ways of God to man. They're seeking to solve the problem of theodicy. And one of the solutions to that is that God allowed, I mean, God would have, must have known, right? God must have known that Adam and Eve were going to eat of the apple and they were going to commit original sin, right? Why would he allow humanity to fall into that 
state? And the answer is, it is a fortunate fall. It is, in fact, a good thing that leads to our providence, because the beings that God created that do not have free will, the angels, they have no choice. When they rebelled, he cast a third of them out of heaven. Again, Milton, Paradise Lost, uh, talks about this uh, brilliantly. The angels must obey God's law. They cannot, they are not built to comprehend a lie. They can neither love nor pity nor forgive. Angels can be glorious, but they are not as high as saints. Because what a human being can do is resist temptation. It is only because a human being can feel temptation, can lie, can love, can pity, can forgive, that a human being can become a saint, that a human being can, in fact, go and become the right hand of God. So the fortunate fall allows us this opportunity that is denied to angels. So when, if, if you take this reading, that the machines are the angels that God has made possible for us to create, right? They are the children of our brain. By using our intellect, by using our capacities, we can rise. So that last stanza, though our smoke may hide the heavens from your eyes, okay, so right now we're in a fallen state, it will vanish and the stars will shine again because for all our power and weight and size, we are nothing more than children of your brain. And I'd like to suggest that for a 1911 book meant for British school children, a country that then was and technically still is a theocracy, where its monarch is the head of the Church of England, there is behind this a, a story of paradise regained. And yes, we've got to be careful of our machines, but we've got to recognize that these machines are something that makes us great. They are not merely tools, even tools that use tools. All of them are tools that we use, use them with care, but then we will have paradise. This is, I think, a, a story, a poem set, as you say, in its moment, and yet also, as you say, universal. That is, you could have read it, you could have written this a thousand years ago, and you could still read it a thousand years from now if what if the message you really want to come out of this is not about the machines, but about people. The secret of the machines is that they are the children of our brain. <laughs> I think uh, there's uh, that's great. You've, you've got it. Um, but there is a subversive reading, and I want to just go over it with you. you. You highlighted some of those exact things, and I want to I want to point point them out to you. So at the beginning, the machines say, um, "We were cut and filed and tooled and gauged to fit. Some water, coal, and oil is all we ask." But at the end, they say, um, "Give us dynamite and drills, not." Please give us dynamite and drills, but give us dynamite and drills. <laughs> and then watch <laughs> the iron-shouldered rocks lie down and quake. Right Now, it continues until the second-to-last stanza. Um, and 
and I, I, I like this subversive reading because it only comes out when you hear the poem, not when you read it. The second to last stanza again. But remember, please, the law by which we live. We are not built to comprehend a lie. We can neither love nor pity nor forgive. If you make a slip in handling us, you die. We are greater than the peoples or the kings. Be humble as you crawl beneath our rods! Exclamation point. Our touch can alter all created things. That is, you humans. And then listen to this last line. We are everything on earth except the gods. E-X-C-E-P-T is how it's spelled. But you can say it slightly differently. Accept the gods. A-C-C. Right? And that... Wow. It is a science fiction story in a certain sense. It's the machine saying, yes, we've been with you for a while. We can do all sorts of things. We find us very useful. We're kind of dangerous, you know, if you're working on a a railroad uh, engine and you make a slip and that thing falls on you, you're dead. And that, that last stanza, right, though our smoke may hide the heavens from your eyes, it will vanish and the stars will shine again. Because for all our power and weight and size, we are nothing more than the children of your brain. So that one seems to take away that fear that was building up. But um, it could probably be read as, you know, well, the reason we're, we're smoking up the sky is for you. When we run things, things will be different. And we are the children of your brain in the way that some other creator created other things. I, I like uh, the subversive reading even more than I like the the regular, you know, hey, isn't the British Empire great? And we can travel all around the world at the slightest telegraph so message. So we've got three readings here, right? Yeah. We've got, and in fact, on the, in the, in the margins, uh, where, and if this is the first publication and Kipling is a co-author, then we can think that it's part of the poem in a sense. It says wireless telegraphs, marine engines, locomotives, pumps, and mining tools that lets us know what has been invented. And so, yes, it's reading one. It's a history of the Industrial Revolution. It's mm-hmm. it's a, a, a lyric in praise of the Industrial Revolution. Reading two that I'm suggesting, um, it is really... Uh, a way of giving us a kind of hope uh, based in the then extant Christianity so that the last marginal note that says all together Mm. suddenly makes it look as if we're all reading from a hymnal. That's what those marginal notes are. It's call, response, call, response, and then all together, Mm -hmm. right? It's as if we're reading out of, but, but the third reading that you're suggesting is that we can see, ah, you know, this is really trying not simply to tell us it will things will get better, but to chastise us and recognize that we are, after all, small compared even to the children of our brain and certainly compared to the gods. So we've got three different ways of reading this poem, which I think all work together. But if I may say, Jesse, there may even be a fourth because there's always more to say. <laughs> and remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.